Amen. Friends, keep that promise in your heart that he won't fail. We need that desperately. We need to hold on to that. You can sit. It's fine. It's all good. I mean, you can stand for the next 40 minutes. That's okay, too. Not 40 minutes. Some of you are already checking your watch. No. Friends, as God's transformed people, as people who have been redeemed by Christ the crucified, as people who have been fed the bread of life, who've drank from the spring of eternal life, as people who have encountered the good news of Jesus risen from the dead, as people who have been released from the captivity of our own sin, as people who have been identified as sons and daughters of a most high king, as people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, we, we have a mission to walk with everyday people every day as we live out the abundant life of Jesus. We go forth from this place out into the mission field, into the places where we live and work and play, inviting people into a relationship with ourselves and and more importantly, into a relationship with Jesus who is in and with us. We live out who God says we are as we live out there serving those around us and recognizing that all people are image bearers of our God. And so as a transformed people, as people who are orienting their lives around the words and the ways of Jesus, as people who believe that that Jesus's life is the definitive way to live, then we reimagine our relationships, all of our relationships, within the context of those three primary relationships of Jesus. A relationship with the Father, a relationship with those who are inside the family of faith, and a relationship with those who don't yet know Jesus. And friends, as we, as we, Holy Cross, live out this missional mandate, we do so being rooted in our identity, and we do so living out those intentional relationships. Now, I know that there are some of you here uh, who are asking, yes, pastor, but what does success look like? Like, Tell me what a win looks like for these things. How do we know that we've actually arrived? How do we know uh, that we've accomplished the task? You see, I know there are some of you sitting in the pews who are asking these questions, right? These are the people who, when they have to stop a game of war to eat dinner, first want to count their cards to make sure they know they've won, right? How do we know we've arrived? Pastor, give us a clear picture of success. How do I know you're sitting there? Because you send me email. Now, truth be told, I actually appreciate these kinds of questions because it is, it is actually important to know if we're actually doing what it is we set out to do. It's important to know, right, what we're aiming for and whether or not we've actually hit the target. It is important to know if we finally reached the summit of the mountain. You know, in, in uh, 1997, there was an author by the name of John Krakauer, and he recorded, he recorded his, his expedition up Mount Everest from the previous year in a book that he titled Into Thin Air, 
a personal account of the Mount Everest disaster. Now, the the book, Krakauer's book, actually became a quick success as scores of people were given a window into the real-life adventures of climbing the highest mountain in the whole world, Uh, but also, but also getting a clear window into what would become one of the deadliest days in Mount Everest history. Now, the book, the book is not without criticism. In fact, there are several people, including guides of other teams on the mountain that day, that call into question Krakauer's own retelling of the events. And while I'm captivated by the story, I'm someone who grew up in the mountains of Colorado. I, I, I know what it means to summit a mountain. I, I enjoyed, actually, Krakauer's picture of sitting on the top of the world. But in my opinion, uh, the real gold of this particular book, like the best nugget of this particular book, happens in the last chapters as Krakauer kind of reflects on the events that have shaped and formed him along the way. Uh, One of the ways that he talks about it is, you know, while there was great joy in reaching the summit of Everest, Krakauer says it is the events along the way that were the most formative. While it was great to get on top of the mountain, it was the events along the way that were the most formative. Another way to say that is this. It, It wasn't the arrival at the goal, but it was the journey toward it that gave the journey itself meaning. It wasn't just the arrival. It was the journey along the way that would give meaning to the whole of what it was to climb Mount Everest. Now, interestingly, this same thought is echoed by the psalm writer in Psalm 84. So let's take a look at the first two verses. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. You can hear in the psalmist's words a desire to be in the presence of of the Lord, which in this case would be in the temple. He's actually longing to arrive at the temple, to arrive into God's presence, into the, to the summit of the mountain, if you will. He longs to be there, but you can also hear that he's willing to take the journey in order to reach it. He wants to get there, And he knows that that'll be good, but he he is willing to endeavor toward it. He is willing to do whatever it takes to move in that direction. And so he'll go on to say, blessed are those whose strength is in you. Listen, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Blessed are those whose strengths are in you and whose hearts are set, on another way to say it is, on the journey towards the summit. As they pass through the valley of Baca, this is a desert, they make it a place of springs. They go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. At this part of the psalm, the psalmist professes the blessedness that comes in the journey towards God's presence. 
So in a similar way to Krakauer in his book, Into Thin Air, the psalmist understands that there is blessedness in the journey, that it's the events along the way that are formative. It is the events along the way that give the journey meaning. And so the psalmist, the psalmist with a heart that is set on God, with eyes that are fixed on the summit, the events of that journey, even in desert places like the Bacaw, the events of that journey will bring growth and formation as one goes from strength to strength. Now, friends, in today's text, Jesus demands that we reimagine our growth, uh, not as a place that we arrive, but actually a process through which we journey. Jesus wants us to reimagine growth not as a place that we arrive, but a process through which we journey. You see, this journey of following Jesus is a lifelong process. It is a lifelong process of continual learning. It is a journey of recognizing God's present work through all of life's situations so that through repentance and faith, we might become more like Jesus. Now, let's get into how Jesus is going to reframe growth for us by digging into first Mark chapter 1, verse 14. So you'll need a Bible, the one you brought, the one that's there, and go to Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Yes, I know it's not what Deanne read. I promise we'll get to Mark chapter 4. But before we can understand Mark 4, we have to understand Mark 1. So Mark 1, uh, verse 14. Mark 1, uh, verse 14. Here we go. Uh, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now it's worth stopping here for just a bit of context. Uh, Jesus moves into Galilee in order to preach after John was put in prison. Now, why was John put in prison? Well, we know from Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 13 that John had been preaching about repentance. And because John was a confident man, and you had to be a confident man if you're willing to preach repentance in a camel-haired loincloth, right? Because he was a confident man, he was preaching repentance to the Roman leader of the land, a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. And he's preaching repentance to Herod because Herod is sleeping with his brother's wife. Now, as you can imagine, Herod doesn't like it much when John goes all kind of William Wallace and gets blue in the face and starts preaching repentance that he's supposed to turn from what it is he's doing. And so Herod, Herod actually wants to have him killed and he thinks better of it because he's sensitive to the Jews that are around him and to a dream out of his own wife. Rather than having killed, he gets thrown into prison. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when the text reads, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, repent, you sort of wonder 
if Jesus is just picking up where John left off, if Jesus isn't in some kind of way like underhandedly challenging Herod, like he's just going to continue what John has been doing. Now, this is my opinion, so take it as my opinion. You can toss it out if you want to, but I totally think that Jesus is just picking up where John left off. Like he is just preaching repentance, but in a reimagined kind of way. It may be an upside down uh, kind of way. Uh, so let's do this. Let's get back to the text and we'll look at the whole thing. Uh, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, if you, if you call this place home, you'll remember that we have spent quite a bit of time, actually, with this short sermon of Jesus. Uh, but let me recap it very briefly, right? The good news of God is this, that the appointed time has come. Right? The good news of God is this. The appointed time has come. The kingdom, the royal reign of God is at hand, Jesus says. Is at hand. Literally reads, is touchable. So God's royal reign is touchable. You can experience God's kingdom on earth. This is the good news that Jesus is proclaiming. The appointed time is here. God's royal reign is touchable by you. You can experience his kingdom on earth. And because that's true, because God's kingdom is at hand, for those of us who are trying to orient our life around the words and the ways of Jesus, our response to that good news is this repentance and belief. That's the response, repentance and belief. Now again, again, let's talk just briefly about the word repentance. Repentance here is not a sorrowful disposition. That's not what it means here. Actually, it's a, it's a, um, it's a reflection on whether or not you are engaged in or how it is you are engaging in the ways of God. It's a reflection on your life and whether or not you are in the way of Jesus. So repentance is not only a reflection, but it's, it's discovering in that reflection that we have fallen prey to the evil one's temptations, or, or in that reflection that we have, we have turned to the ways of the world, or in that reflection we have somehow turned to our own sinful ways. So repentance is not just a, a sorrowful disposition, it's a reflection on our lives and whether or not we're living in the ways of God. But it is also confession it's admitting that we aren't in the way of God, that we've turned to cultural norms, or we turn to the way of our own sin, or we've turned to the temptations of the devil. Repentance is a reflection and it's a confession, but more than that, it is a trusting 
and turning back to God. So repentance here, repentance here is not just a sorrowful disposition. It is a reflection, it is a confession, and it is a turning to God. But that's a lot of words, and Jesus is trying to sum it up, so it's much more efficient and succinct to say repent. But it is all of those things. And friends, once, once we have actually reflected and confessed and turned to walk in faith, and we trust that God will shape us deeper into his image every time we reflect and we confess and we turn. And so our posture, according to Jesus, our posture and response to God's royal reign on earth is repentance and faith. It is continually asking Continually asking in every situation, in every context, on every mountaintop, and in every valley, in every joy, in every grief, how is it that Jesus is working in and through these things for my own growth in faith? That's what it means. It's to continually ask in every situation, every context, every mountaintop, every valley, every joy, every grief, how is Jesus working in and through these things in order to grow my faith? So our posture, church, and response to God's royal reign on earth is repentance and faith, to continually ask how is God working in every situation to form and shape us into his image? Or as St. Paul would say, how we grow up into him who is Christ Jesus in every way. Now friends, it's with this frame of looking at every situation and every opportunity and every mountain and every valley, every joy and every grief and asking the question, how is Jesus working in and through it that brings us now to Mark chapter four. So if you want to fast forward to Mark chapter 4, uh, we'll land in what is arguably one of the most famous parables that Jesus tells. And here, here in chapter 4, Jesus sets a scene that causes or should cause everyone to pause. Because Jesus, Jesus is a carpenter by trade. He's standing in a fishing boat and he's gonna talk about farming. Like that's odd. That should at some point slow us down and pay attention. The, the very context in which Jesus tells this story as a carpenter in a fishing boat talking about farming is like a, it's like a speed bump in a parking lot. I don't know if you've ever, ever done this with your car, but you, you miss seeing the speed bump. And so you're going at a particular rate, and when you go over the speed bump, you almost actually damage the bottom of your car. I know that that's never personally happened to you, but let's, let's say hypothetically, you've missed those moments. Speed bumps exist for you and me to slow down. They exist so that we will say to ourselves, we should probably pay attention. There's a reason that speed bumps are in parking lots because there are people everywhere. And if we don't slow down and pay attention, we might miss it and hit them. 
The context in which Jesus tells this story, a carpenter in a fishing boat talking about farming, is a speed bump. It is Jesus quite literally saying, slow down, friends. I need you to pay attention to what's happening here. Because if you slow down and pay attention, this will be an opportunity for your own growth. In fact, when Jesus begins the parable in verse three, when he begins the parable, he does so in a way that is uh, incredibly familiar to the Jews who are listening to this. Verse three, this is how it is. Jesus starts the parable by saying, listen. Now, what's so familiar about the word listen? Why should we pay attention? Uh, If I could translate it, if I could translate it kind of into language that's us, it'd be like, y'all, listen up. Hey, 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 pay attention. Because what I'm about to say, it dang matters, right? Like that's what Jesus is doing when he says listen. And frankly, frankly for the Jewish listeners, they would hear the words of Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Deuteronomy six, verse four, something known as the great Shema. And the opening of the great Shema is this, you ready? Listen. Listen up, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These words of Deuteronomy 6.4, listen, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These are words that are on repeat in the minds and the mouths of every faithful Jew. They are words that are written on tiny little scrolls and actually adhered to door frames so that when I walk in and out of my house, I can kiss those words as a reminder to always be thinking about them, to always allow those words to shape me in faith that I want to hear and never stop listening. So when Jesus then here in Mark chapter four says, listen, he's calling to mind the great Shema. What I'm about to say needs to be paid attention to, to be reflected on, to be learned from, not just once, but continually. In fact, the parable itself, parables by and large are kind of cryptic so that they will constantly be turned over in our minds and our hearts. And this parable, friends, if we can slow down and pay attention, this parable will provide plenty of opportunity for our continued growth in faith. Now, thankfully, Jesus explains the parables to the disciples and to us. And so the parable of the sower is simple, right? The sower goes out and he sows the word. Some of that seed falls on a, on a hard path and some of it falls on a rocky path, and some of it falls on a thorn-infested path, and some of it it falls on good soil. And Jesus says the word which falls along the path on that hard road is word that falls on hard hearts. And because the heart is hard, Satan quickly comes and snatches away that word. Now, some of us, some of us might have hard hearts. And some of us might have hard hearts because of things that have happened to us or been said to us in our past. And we become so calloused in our hearts that we won't allow people in, even 
the very Word of God. Jesus goes on, he says, well, there are some that actually falls into rocky soil. This is word that falls into a shallow heart where there's no root that can be taken. And so, even though the seed will fall into the ground and germinate and begin to spring, because that soil is so shallow, persecution and trouble will simply topple it over. I suspect there are some in our midst who are struggling with trouble. Jesus said some word falls then on a thorn-infested ground, and in that case, the seed actually comes into the ground, it germinates, and it sprouts, but it's not allowed to be brought to fruit because the, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for something other than that word, they choke out what God is doing. Again, I suspect there are some in our midst who, whose hearts are infested with the worries of the world or the deceitfulness of wealth or desire for something more than God's Word. I think Jesus says some falls on good ground. When it falls on good ground, it takes root, it germinates, it sprouts, and it finally it brings forth fruit. And it brings forth such fruit that it's almost unfathomable, 30, 60, and 100 times. You see, the word which falls into good soil is a soil that has been tilled and cultivated by grace. It is a soil that has been cared for and looked after. It is a soil that has been worked. It is a heart, it is a heart that through time has learned the rhythm and the patterns of repentance and belief. Good soil is a heart that has been in this rhythm of continual learning over time. A heart that is well-tended, takes every opportunity to seek Jesus and His royal reign through reflection and confession and turning to a new path and then walking in it. It is a heart that has been tended well by the Word of God through time, a heart that is continually learning what it means to become more and more and more like Jesus. You know, friends, this, this parable is arguably one of the most famous that Jesus tells, and rightly so. It is so poignant to the hearts not only of the disciples of His day, but to disciples today. And no doubt we will continue to wrestle, not only today, but in the days to come. Which soil are we? Which soil is my heart today? That's an opportunity, friends, to reflect, more than likely to confess, and then to turn in faith back into the ways of Jesus. It's continual learning how God is working in every situation, every context, every mountaintop and valley, every joy and every grief for our own growth. It's an opportunity. I know that lots of us would prefer just to be good soil all the time, 
Oh, but friends, that, that's not going to happen this side of heaven. It's just not. You know, one of the things that I love about reading the New Testament is watching the life of disciples. Because more often than not, man, they jack it up something fierce. And I'm so thankful that that's true. That they too are on a journey that some days their hearts are hard. Some days it's rocky. Some days it's infested by thorns. And some days it is good. You know, when I, when I read the New Testament and I look at those people in the New Testament who are trying to live by faith, who are in this process of repentance and belief, uh, one thing becomes very, very clear. People who are living by faith are living progress over perfection. People who are living by faith are living progress over perfection. And friends, as we endeavor to live out this mandate of Jesus to walk every day with everyday people, as we live out the abundant life of Jesus, then we are going to have to live in a progress over perfection kind of way. One of my favorite stories, and I, I told this if you were at uh, the congregational meeting, but one of my favorite stories is we had a pastor visit here. That's a pastor of some renown, certainly in the state of Michigan in the Lutheran Church. And he said to Pastor Adam and myself afterwards, he says, you know what I love about this place? You definitely don't have it all figured out. <laughs> Peace me is like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I should like that, actually. But what he was saying was, is that when he comes to this place, it feels incredibly human. That it feels like we're a bunch of people who are in progress. And through God's grace, on the way to perfection. But we haven't arrived. But every opportunity, every situation, every context, every high, low, mountaintop, and valley is an opportunity for us to reflect and confess and then turn again to God, so that as we learn, He will continue to shape us deeper into His image. May God empower us by His Holy Spirit to that end. Amen? Amen. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, may guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day.